Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Our scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 16. And please join me in reading this. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, Where have you come from, and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord, who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, good morning. My name is Mark, and I've been known to be called a wild donkey of a man. You may call me so. I've been looking forward to this series for quite a long time because when we decided about what we're going to do, we'd like to spend time in the New Testament, Old Testament. As a staff, we were talking about it, and we kicked around the idea of what if we did a survey around women in the Old Testament? Because I've been a part of churches that have had many conversations about the fathers of our faith. We've discussed at league people like Abraham, Noah, Moses, Nehemiah, Jonah, and David, they, they come to mind often. But I have not been a part of a church that did a survey of what are the different women of our Old Testament. And so uh, today we're going to begin that series. It's going to be a six-week-long series. I wondered, like most things in church, like this is not an original idea. I wonder if other churches have done similar things, like doing a survey of women in the Old Testament. And I began, as I looked online, to realize why I wish some churches didn't do it. Because some of the names of these series are so cringy. You want to see a couple? All right, here we go. Here we go. How about this one? Her Story. You know, like history, but her story. Here we go. All right. Then there's this one, Hidden Figures. I might or might not pitch this idea to our staff, but okay. And then there's Hermeneutics. Pretty bad. There's Sheroes of the Faith. And then there, there was a ton of random series that were just a random word, like fierce. You know, like that's just, that's just and so I'm sure someone somewhere is going to be looking at our name and go, overlooked. Like, why that? Well, we decided to call this series Overlooked because sadly, there are some incredible stories of women in the Old Testament that are like, heartbreaking and inspiring and thought-provoking, these women who are just beautiful examples of courage and faith that we have in our scripture. So we're going to spend the next six weeks sitting at the feet of these women as we learn uh, from them. We're going to try to look through the web of patriarchy that was at play when they were alive, the patriarchy that we found, find um, when scripture was written, and sadly, the patriarchy that still is in our midst and in the church and our culture to see 
what, uh, what these individuals have to teach us. Along with this series, I'm also invited some of my favorite preachers who have also happen to be women. They're going to come and give a couple of these messages. And not only are we going to have these six sermons, but we're also going to have a daily reading plan that you guys have. This postcard here on the back of it will, will be, uh, include a daily reading plan for you because we believe that it's good for us to gather in this way and to look at Scripture, but it doesn't replace our own longings to go to God's Word to see all that we can find in Scripture. And for those who are online, whether watching this online or through our podcast, you can go to thevineaustin.org slash overlook for those daily readings. And as always, to get the most out of this series, we encourage people to get into a small group, what we call Vine groups. These are the places, like Katie was saying, these are places where We bring our honest questions and our doubts and our beliefs to one another to find a place of mutual encouragement and support. So you can go online to find those groups. But today we're going to look at the individual Hagar. Hagar's story comes super early in the text, in 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 our sacred text, starting in Genesis 16. Hagar is not just commonly overlooked, but sadly mischaracterized and misunderstood by the church. To understand Hagar's story, really, we have to understand Abraham and Sarah's story because uh, it was intertwined with her. At this point in the story, Abraham and Sarah, known as Abram and Sarai, they had not been renamed by God, and so that's where we find Hagar. So God chose Abram seemingly out of nowhere to be a sign and a demonstration of what it means to be a blessing for this world. And Abram was told by God this, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You can imagine what that would have meant to this couple. How they would have held on to this promise that not only that God was with them, that God was, uh, was longing to be with them, but that they would have a profound role to play in this world. That this one couple would be the beginning of an entire nation. That this one couple would be a blessing to the entire world. How God would use them to change everything. But there are a couple of problems that Abram and Sarai would experience with God's plans. Maybe you've experienced these things too. The problems are this, that God's blessed plan usually involves a lot of challenges. And the second problem is that God is rarely in a hurry. (laughs) Maybe you've experienced this too, that when you feel like you're walking in God's design for your life, that you expect for everything to be like soft edge, like nerf coated, like soft edge, everything is going to be easy, paths are going to be straight for you, and you find that there's challenges along the way. And also you have these longings that you hold on to. And you're waiting for God to make good on promises that you feel like God's given you, and God seems to just be delaying that thing. And so, I'm curious, how do you respond when God seems to be in no hurry? When our lives are stuck in that space in between what we had heard and hoped for and the realization of that thing, I think that some of our biggest regrets in our life is not coming from longing for the wrong thing. It's actually just the impatience that we feel at times and how we try to circumvent waiting, how we can try to find a shortcut to get to the thing that we want, how we can try to exercise control when we feel like we are just living in chaos and maybe even jump on the thing that's present 
and in the rearview mirror, just ask God to bless that thing. Well, what I have found to be true is that God's blessings often seem delayed. So faith is not only believing that God will make good on God's promises, but faith is also trusting in God's timing for that faithfulness. Trust is displayed in just staying in the process, not getting out of it by numbing out, not getting out of it by exercising your control, but staying in the process, trusting God every step of the way. And friends, that is just hard work. That blessing oftentimes doesn't feel like a blessing. Abram was tired of waiting, and so he brought his complaint to God. This is in Genesis chapter 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? No one wanted Eliezer of Damascus to get his stuff, right? (laughs) And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my own household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, said, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. So God took Abram outside and said, look up at the sky, count the stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said to Abram, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. This moment is what we oftentimes can think of when we think about Abram, is this man of great faith looking at the stars and receiving this unbelievable promise that this will be your legacy, these will be your descendants. We have this idea of Abram doing that, and above everything else, what we think of is that he believed God and God called that righteousness. What is often overlooked is what happens in the very next chapter, 14 verses later, we find this in Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. So notice who's getting the blame for this. God, God is withholding this ability from me. And so Sarah devises his plan, and Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan for 10 years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. What is taking place here is tragically somewhat normative. Back in that day, if a parent could have a child, the husband oftentimes would take on another wife to do so, perhaps even a slave. That was culturally acceptable, But what is different in this case, in this story, is normally an individual is not told by God that they would have a family from their own flesh and blood. Couples aren't usually told that by God. Abram had this promise that he would have more descendants than the stars in the sky by your very flesh and blood. So that seems kind of unique to me. Uh, But Sarai and Abram grow tired of waiting tired of trusting, and they circumvent God's promise by something that was permissible in that day and time, but it seemed to be outside God's longing and design for their life. You can understand, though, Abram and Sarai's thinking, right? You sit with this long enough, 
this longing that you have, you can see after a while that you think maybe, maybe God intended that we actually have a family through another means. Maybe that's what God meant, right? <laughs> Should we just adopt the, adapt the promise to exactly to be what we want to do? So we don't have to trust anymore. And that's exactly what they do. Now, the Bible can be really, really complicated at times. Sometimes by what the Bible says, other times by what it doesn't say. This is one of those moments for me. It's not because what's in the text, although there is a lot of troubling aspects of this, but for me, what's complicated is what's missing from the text. All we see is Sarai devising this plan and Abram going, okay, I guess I'll have sex with her too. And this couple is done waiting for God. And this was also that, remember, so that Sarah can build a family through her. A lot of the blame seems to be going to Sarai, right? Not to Abram, but to Sarai. That's, that's troubling. And then Hagar was given to Abram. They slept together and they conceived, and that's that. It's just simple. But what's missing from this text is that when someone is considered property by someone else, like Hagar was, and they're given over, this is not just another form of polygamy. This is exploitation. Hagar was an enslaved girl she had little options. A foreigner living in tribalism has little option. This couple was meant to be a pillar of faith, a demonstration of how God can bless the entire world, and instead they exploit Hagar's vulnerable position. This was not a demonstration of a blessing or righteousness. Though someone could interject by saying, well, you don't know the details of what happened, right, in this relationship. Well, we do know what happens next. This is what happens. When Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now she knows she is pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. How has this passage been usually read and understood? Sarah is all over the place. Her desires are all over the place, and, and now she's blaming Abram. And here's Hagar despising Sarai because now she is in an elevated position, right? Because now all of a sudden she is despising her mistress. But I wonder if there's something more to this. That could be true. That could be how we should read it. But perhaps also Sarah, uh, Hagar despises Sarah for other reasons, namely being coerced asleep <laughs> with her enslaver and having this undesired pregnancy. And also, by the way, when Hagar has this child, this child will not be considered Hagar's child. This is now Sarai's son. So these are also valid reasons for anger, I would think. And how does Abram treat Hagar after hearing this, after Sarai comes to him so upset? Well, like any other piece of property, Hagar was easily discarded. This is what Abram says. Your slave is in your hands. Do what, with her whatever you think is best. Not even saying her name, this woman who is carrying his own child was just another slave, just to be uh, discarded. So then the text says, then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so Hagar fled from her. Okay, so let's pause here for a second. I want to invite you to close your eyes for a moment here, and I want you to imagine Hagar. Hagar far from home, away from support, 
disposed of and also pregnant. She is now on the run. She's trying to make it back to Egypt, we find out. Back home. Where we find her next that she's walked 40 miles in the desert. A place of scarcity, of vulnerability, and loneliness. What words would you describe, use to describe that physical and emotional and spiritual state? What is Hagar experiencing? Let's hear a couple words. How would you describe that state that she is in? When you hear those words, perhaps they aren't foreign. Maybe you've had moments in your own life where you felt alone, desperate, scared. You can open up your eyes. One thing that we find is that Hagar would rather die in the wilderness rather than to face the abuse from God's people. Abram and Sarah were set apart to be to be able to display the power of God's blessing in this world. And instead of Hagar, they display the power of abuse. The mistreatment of Sarai and the ambivalence that Abram displays cuts to the core. And rather than staying and continuing to receive more and more of this mistreatment and abuse and this exploitation, she chooses to go off into the wilderness. So do I have permission to get on a soapbox just for a second? Uh, There are too many people who are in the wilderness of this world because they have felt the rejection, the abuse from God's people. The church who has been set aside just like Abram and Sarai to display what it means to be blessed by God, to be able to be a blessing to this entire world, what it means to bear God's image in this world, we, the church, have also seen so many people flee into the wilderness. And tragically, what we see with those roles that we find in Abram and Sarai of the abuser and the, <laughs> the uh, ap- ap- apathetic individual who's just turning their eyes away from the pain we find in our own presence, in our own, in our own churches, in our own history, those who abuse and judge the vulnerable and those who just look the other way and do nothing about it whether it's the legacy of racism within the church, the mistreatment of the LGBTQ community by the church, the ambivalence and disregard for those trapped in cycles of poverty and oppression, the ambivalence to those who are fleeing for their life, hoping for a refuge and new beginnings, the unknown numbers of survivors of sexual and spiritual abuse by those who lead the church again and again and again People go to the wilderness. Friends, you need to know this about God. As heavy as that reality is, you need to know this about God, is that God will always be found in the wilderness. God will always be found in the wilderness. God will be with those who've been turned away, afflicted, discarded, and forgotten. Hagar can tell us this much Maybe you've been in that wilderness too. Don't overlook this story. Hagar is in the wilderness and completely alone. Or is she? 
Verse seven, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. Uh, uh, just a, a hint in reading the scripture, especially Old Testament. My friend uh, and Jewish scholar, friend S- Sandy Cress, he always taught me, whenever you find a passage with a well in it, pay attention because something big is about to happen in the Old Testament. So what happens here? This is the first time that we find that phrase, an angel of the Lord. That's the first time we find that in all of Scripture, this special rule, an angel has now been sent to speak on behalf of God, the very voice of God through this angel. And this is what happens in verse 8. He said to Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Sarai, um, Hagar responded, I'm running away from my mistress. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son, and you shall call him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. Now, there are a couple obvious uh, difficulties in this story, in particular, the word for Hagar to go back to her abuser and to submit to her. We should acknowledge that. Tragically, the cycle of abuse, as we will find in our readings this week, that cycles of abuse will continue for Hagar, including that picture that is on the postcard. You'll see why that is there. We can get stuck there with this text, but there's something that we tragically might overlook here in this passage. A profound thing just took place. Though God's chosen family treated Hagar with contempt and bitterness, though this foreigner and this slave was discarded by this couple, God's eyes were on her. God heard her in the wilderness. God knew of her vulnerable state. And God came after her. Though we have no reason to believe that Abram and Sarai gave a second glance, what we know to be truth is that God was with Hagar. She was not just a plaything. She was not just a means to an end. She was not just a piece of property to be used. No, God was listening to her. And so the angel shares God's word that this child is to be named Ishmael, which means God hears. This child would be this beautiful and sacred reminder that God hears you, Hagar. This week I watched this documentary called Stutz. Anyone seen it? Yeah? Okay. So it's uh, actor Jonah Hill created this documentary to display the tools and the experience that he had with his therapist, a guy named Phil Stutz. One of the more poignant moments in the documentary came when uh, Jonah was asked about his, the unexpected death of his brother. His brother died unexpectedly, and the way that Jonah Hill responded was he instinctively just showed up to his therapist's office. And so that's where he was. And before When they sat down on the couches, before anything else, Stutz asked Jonah to give him his phone and to take a picture, and he took this picture and gave it back to him. Four years later in this documentary, uh, Jonah Hill asked him, I remember that you took a picture of me on that couch, and I've never asked you this, but why did you do that? And this therapist responded by saying, it's very rare in life that you get to take a snapshot of the climactic moment in your life. And as time goes past, that you can be able to look back at that picture and consider the forces of healing and recovery that have met you along your way. The name, I believe that the name that God gives this child, Ishmael, 
is like a snapshot in time. It will be a landmark that this mother will always remember. That as she held this baby, as she nursed this child, as she watched him grow, that she will always be reminded of the moment back then in that desert, the moment of perhaps her greatest despair, the moment that she felt the most abandoned and alone would actually be, be the moment of victory. A sweet moment where she encountered God and God said, I have been listening to you. Your story won't end in disgrace. It won't end here in the desert. And then she receives this parallel promise that Abram received. It's so similar that you will have more descendants than you can count. That you are going to create a legacy. And then something beautiful takes place, guys. Something beautiful takes place in verse 13. Then Hagar gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Bir Laha Roy, which is the well of the living one who sees me. It's still there. As author Rachel Held Evans reminds us in her beautiful book, Inspired, that usually God is the one who does the naming. Whether it's Abraham, Jacob, or Israel, they were all named by God and renamed by God, but yet not here. Hagar names God. Most scholars consider this to be the only time in all of Scripture that someone names God. And it's worth noting it's not a religious leader, not a king, not some warrior or prophet. It was a foreigner, a slave, a woman who had the clarity and the courage to say, you have named my son, but now I name you. You are the God who sees me. It's too bad that we have overlooked powerful stories like this because Hagar has something to teach you and me that though we might be running from the pain or rejection or suffering that oftentimes happens in this world, though you might find yourself far from home, though you might feel isolated and alone, that there is a spring in the desert that can tell us something that we have to remember. You are not alone. There is one who listens to every prayer that you pray. There's one who's attentive to you, one who wants you to be able to declare the same words that Hagar had shared, that you are the God who sees me. Church, whether it is the wilderness of your own making or the wilderness and the pain that this world has caused you, I just want you to know today that God is ready to meet you. God hears you. God sees you. So the invitation is to come to this well that meets you in a desert, meets you in a wilderness, to draw upon its waters, to go to God, and to not overlook this profound truth that God's eyes are on you, God listens to you. This is God's very name. We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about the vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to the Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.